Welcome to Practical Access. I'm Lisa Deeker. And I'm Rebecca Hines. And as always, Lisa has done a fantastic job of rounding up a great guest for this session. Yes, so we are so excited to have Christopher Cormier with us. And he is a postdoc at Stanford University. He happens to be in Illini, but we'll go there later. And happens to really focus on uh, special education, teachers of color, but he's also serving on CEC's president role for the Division for Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Exceptional Learners. So thank you for joining us, Christopher. We're You're welcome. Thank yeah. you for having me. Oh, and we didn't mention he has twin daughters. Twin so, daughters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which means you probably have one wrapped around each pinky is my guess. Uh, yes, the daughters. For the most part, yes. <laughs> right. I, I have their stuffed animals in my bag because they made me take pictures with them. Matter of fact, before we leave, I have to get a picture with them here. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Well, we love that you're also a fabulous dad. So, so I'm going to kick off with the first question. You know, it's the 100th anniversary of and so we're going to ask you to reflect kind of in the past, in your own personal work, where are you most excited about the impact or some thinking that you've made in the field to this point? I think it's twofold, my answer. So on one hand, I think about my work, because I think my work as being a teacher is one thing that I'm happy on, and then my work as a researcher and scholar being another. So I think when I was a teacher, I, I just really am happy about the fact that I was willing to stick my neck out and be a maverick for the students, particularly students of color in special education. Um, there were so many challenges that many of these students had that they, when they spoke up, people didn't believe them or just whatever else was going on. So I, I'm really proud, and being able to help them learn and, and and help them, um, like all teachers, when you notice something that a student didn't know how to do and that light bulb goes off, it's just a great feeling, especially for students who have disabilities who are in 11th, 12th grade and can't even decode. And so when you finally get to the point where they can actually know the alphabet and do some decoding, it's just a great feeling. Um, one of my students recently is getting married. It really shows me how old I am now. Um, so I had him when he was in the seventh grade. As far as my research as a scholar, I continuously push issues of equity and diversity. Every meeting that I've been in with CEC, CEC board members, whether it's open or not, I bring up the question of if they say equity, well, how are we defining equity? Because in special education, we continue to only define equity in ways that we're working with students with disabilities, not thinking about linguistic differences and um, uh, racial um, ethnic differences. So those are the two things that I'm proud of that I know that many teachers don't have or not in spaces where they have that platform to be able to have a voice um, on this magnitude. So I'm just really pleased of being able to be in this place um, for the most part. It can be um, taxing at times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Voice is important, yes. And you know, then I'm gonna throw this at Christopher without any warning. So <laughs> one, one, of, one of our recent graduates and scholars, Whitney Hanley, actually in her dissertation, she, in her study, she found that uh, black girls had a sense of feeling surveilled. She was looking at middle schoolers, and, and um, it's a, such a specific thing that she found that it, there's, there's an action item that I can take now as, as somebody in teacher preparation. I can say, hey, this is what we found, and so what can we do differently as teachers to make sure we're not just looking at certain kids? Mm -hmm. What are some other specific things that I can tell these pre-service teachers that they're just not even aware that they're doing? What, what can I do to, to help all of my students? 
That is a great question, and I'm also going to have a shameless plug based on your question because I have a paper coming out any day now in Teaching Exceptional Children that is talking, that I use a fictionalized vignette of a black girl named Lakeisha and, and a Southeast Asian American student named Han, and I actually deal with that. So the paper is called, uh, How Did You Get Here? You're Not Supposed to Be Here, and it's examining um, the uh, social, emotional, and mental health support of twice exceptional learners, minoritized learners. So exactly what you mentioned, there's this fictionalized vignette of a girl named Lakeisha who is seen as being loud and seen right. as being defiant right. and not seen for um, her exceptionally brightness and that she should also be in a gate um, class. So to your point, I think that the reality is that it, we need to um, push against the stereotype attitude of black women, particularly when, if we're looking at this particular case of black girls. Black girls in schools are seen as much older than that's white kids, exactly that's the problem. Reported. So they, they, they're 12 years old, but the perception and the way that they're treated in schools is like they're 16 or 17. And then there's this, there's this hypersexualized aspect that they have towards black girls. And then also this attitude that they're um, defiant and that they're the angry black woman. And so until schools can, because schools are microcosms of society and society sees black women in the same way, until we can get to a point where we are pushing teachers to not have the same negative racist stereotypical attitudes of these girls, um, then it's just going to continue. And I, I, I wish my work is trying to push up against that by doing work. I, I try to do work. If I'm doing a research study, then I try to match that with doing papers for practitioners. Very challenging because we're not taught how to write to practitioners in doc programs. Um, but I think the reality is that until we can get to a point of having open dialogue conversations of what is really going on in the schools and how are these students treated, even at a conference like this, maybe we should have more students here and bringing right. their voice because teachers sometimes aren't aware that they're doing it and sometimes it's just a perpetuating thing that's being done but there are still racial undertones there that are causing some problems so I, I, I can't say I'm never one I'm not the type of scholar to just say here is the checkoff box of what you can do. I think that there's always these considerations that haven't been um, done quite well in schools, particularly for white teachers. And we, we try those things and see where they go. But until we can really fight up against the negative attitudes towards black girls and black women, then we're just going to continue to see this cycle of exactly the things that you're saying that your colleague is mentioning, which I also talked about in my work. Yeah. And so, so what besides this, what besides this idea of this, you know, surveilling girls um, because they are louder because of, of, of these different stereotypical behaviors? What other what other look fors should we be telling these pre-service teachers? Like when you see this, it doesn't necessarily mean this. Can you think of anything offhand that falls? I, I don't think that there's necessarily a what do you because I think that the reality is that this is how schools, particularly the, the majority of our teachers in schools, even spared are white teachers. So I think that this is just how they're seen. So I can't. I don't want to give a prescriptive lens sure. in saying that these are the things. What I will say is that just paying attention to what's going on and how these students feel. These students are not. One thing I will say about black girls girls in schools, they have no shame in saying how you're making them feel. Mm -hmm. And whether you agree with it or not, you cannot disagree with how someone feels. So if they're telling you how they feel, then listen to them. You know, And I think that happens all the time in schools, even when I was teaching. They would say, Mr. Cormier, I told them to stop doing that. Mr. Cormier, they're letting my teacher look to my hair and wanted to touch it. You know, that, that's a level of surveillance because it's, it's, it's almost this unseen or they don't understand what it means to be a black girl or whatever, whatever the case is. So I think that when these students or speaking up against something about what they want, what their needs are, listening to them, because that doesn't happen all the time. And then when they say how they feel, the problem is that they're seen as defiant when they're just saying, this is how I feel. So I, I can't give a prescriptive lens. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most important things is listen to student voice, which we don't do. We, we want 
somebody else to necessarily tell us what to do when the student has no problem at all telling <laughs> right. you what they want and what they right. don't want. I, right. love, I love that. And I have kind of a follow-up to question that. So uh, imagine I'm a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. I have 150 students throughout the day. Mm -hmm. I want to listen to their voice. How do I do that? Do you have any thoughts? So it's interesting that you would say that because in a presentation earlier today, I admitted that it's only been in the last few years that I've recognized or at least been open to understanding the challenge that a gen ed teacher faces. Before my career, the attitude has been, you're a gen ed teacher, you're supposed to do it. Yeah. Regardless of the fact that you have 148 kids in a day, you're supposed to. So I understand the challenges. I think the reality is that even when you have, because I, I didn't have that many students when I was teaching, but I did have like 80, of course the other day so the reality is that even with those 80 all of them are not necessarily vocal and there's not necessarily any challenges with all of them the reality is as a teacher that's just what you do so you may you know you find ways and if you can't so there were situations where I had students that would come to my class because something happened in another class and they got upset and they just left and they come to me because they're comfortable with me I want to be empathetic and I am it's not even I want to be the reality is I have another class that I have to teach and I'm teaching right in this moment. So I get a counselor on the call. I get someone that I, that I know um, that has a, another good relationship with them. Um, I don't just blow them off. So then the thing is that as a teacher, sometimes you can't give your attention, even as a parent, you can't give your attention every single place that you want to. But then are you going to really be mindful of providing resources? I, the student says something, whatever it is, is something that you're not doing or somebody else isn't doing and you can't help them, then who can I talk with? Because sometimes I made the mistake in my career in saying, go to the office, I'll call the counseling office, and they're just sitting there. And then they're there for the whole period. So I learned to get someone on the phone and say, come here to see this kid. And sometimes that may be even the janitor. Yeah. That may just be mm -hmm. someone, that, that may be security. So I, I, I agree with you. When you have that many students, you may not. I think that going back to your question, the thing about the listening is if it's something that you're doing that's causing pain or anguish with that student, then you have no choice but to listen because you're the one that's causing the problems. On the flip side, if it's something that the student is experiencing, not, not a home situation per se, we know that you are a mandated reporter, but if it's an issue in another class or with somebody else and you can't at that moment, then you find the correct resources and connect them. And that may even just be calling home and just letting the parents know, whatever it is. But I think that, again, if it's something that you're doing, it, I don't care if you have 3,000 students, if you're causing some type of anguish and that student is saying something, you need to find the time to listen. And if you're getting it with too many students, then you have to do a self-examination of yourself and not necessarily the student, not at all the students. Yeah, that's, I'm, a, I'm a Dewey fan, mm -hmm. you know, look, not for the <laughs> yeah. child, but the teaching of the child, and boy, you know, and, and I love that, that, it's, that that statement is not just timeless. I think you're saying that that statement is also very culturally responsive, yep. and I think yep. that's, that's equally important. So our last question for you is, um, fast forward in the future, however far you want to go, what do you want the world to look like from what you know to this point in, in schools and classrooms for kids with disabilities? I want students to be accepted. I, I, I think that I want the world to recognize that individuals with disabilities, even outside of school, are, are just people and are not, shouldn't be seen as someone to pity, shouldn't be seen as some project, shouldn't be seen as someone I should be friends with just because, you know, it's almost like we have these commercials that make people feel good where there's a, a child who has an intellectual disability who was voted prom queen or something and everyone's so happy. That's nice, okay, but the reality is when are we gonna live in a world where it's just natural that they, they're not, they, they, the reality is we all know that this child was voted as a result of a pity vote and not because somebody actually wants to do it. So I want students with disabilities to feel an integral part of the team. It's almost like the, um, I love old movies and I love um, documentaries and there's these documentaries that talk about old black films and The Little Rascals where you have all these white kids and you have one black kid. The interesting thing is Buckwheat on The Little Rascals, 
the way even in the 1930s was written in such a way where he was just a kid a part of the team like right. everyone else he wasn't he wasn't this black kid he wasn't he was just made to feel just as involved and just there like everyone else and that's what i would want our schools to look like i want our teachers not just sped teachers i want our gen ed teachers i want our administrators i want everyone to say i don't want to walk into a teacher's lounge and hear about the child that you know can't read or something or i don't want to sit in an iep meeting and hear that well we shouldn't talk about this because i know he's in the fourth grade but he's not going to have a job other than just being a janitor these are the types of things that i've seen in my career and so i want these students to feel valued because as special educators we know that we know that these, they're just kids like everyone else they laugh they they i've i had there is no warmer experience i guess i can say in closing than i had as a special educator the work that i do with pre service teachers is great right unfortunately sorry for my job <laughs> but i will say it does not match when i was working with children it just is not the same feeling and so i just want these students to feel welcome i want to be able to teach college classes where my class is 80 percent students with disabilities right. you know and that i'm hoping for a world with when that happens and that would just be really welcome to me and lastly it's almost like when i'm teaching classes i get excited when i know students have advocated for themselves and i get a notice from the counseling department saying that they need these accommodations you right. know so those are the types of things that i look for and i just hope we live in a world where they're just accepted and seen as just every like everyone else and that's what i'm hoping for well, hopefully, uh, leaders like you will be heard. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, we thank you so much for your time, thank Christopher. You. Thank great you. to Thanks have so you. Much. And if you have questions, please tweet us at Access Practical, or you can post us questions on our Facebook page at Practical Access. Thank you again. Thank you so much.